Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to John Weisner about his new book, The Alchemy of Disease, How Chemicals and Toxins Cause Cancer and Other Illnesses. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by just telling the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I uh, started my interest in toxicology in high school, believe it or not. Um, I had an opportunity. I was in L.A. High. Um, in the, this was in the late 1950s. And my physics teacher I was actually interested in electronics engineering, but my physics teacher suggested that I take a, an examination that was being given by the National Academy of Sciences to, they were trying to identify people who might be good at medical research in high school. This was post Sputnik, you know, so there was a lot of money being thrown at the sciences at that time. Anyway, I took the test and I wound up being uh, in the laboratory of the associate dean of USC Medical School uh, in the pharmacology department. <clears throat> and we were studying marine venoms. So I, be, I became, and my first experience in toxicology was venoms and how they make people sick and kill people. And, and, and I also worked with Finley Russell, who was the world's expert on rattlesnake venoms, who was just down the street from us, who was, he was at, he was at Loma Linda University Medical School. So that was the beginning. And I worked for uh, Paul Saunders, who was my mentor for several years. I worked on Saturdays and, you know, or I worked on during the summers and lo and behold, he, I all of a sudden, I got an invitation to Johns Hopkins to um, go to school uh, and the undergraduate school and with a scholarship. I, my, my father had passed away when I was 15 and I was working every day after school. So I really couldn't do it on my own. But the op- Paul Saunders just opened up a lot of opportunities for me. And eventually, after Hopkins, I I went to USC Medical School, and I got an MD PhD there. Actually, I didn't work in his lab because he had gone to the biology department um, as the chairman of the undergraduate school. Uh, so anyway, so that started my whole career and how I became interested in toxicology. Then. Um, after I, I did an internship in pediatrics, and then I went to the NIH, and lo and behold, I, one of the reasons I was able to work there was because they wanted somebody to purify a sea snake venom <clears throat> that they were using in neurological research. So that was, and then, and then my, uh, I went on to work actually for a while in the, ex, in the, in the executive office uh, of the president on the war on drugs, Nixon's war on drugs. And I was involved in, in funding research for developing new treatments for heroin addiction and 
and other uh, drug issues. After that, I, I, I started my own consulting firm, government contracts firm, and I continued to work on the drug issue. I ran a, a large phase three clinical trial on a, on a new treatment. And I also worked, that's when I worked for the government on the lead-based paint poisoning prevention issue. And I worked for um, CDC and National Bureau of Standards and, and did a and HUD uh, on that issue. So that was really my, my beginning in, in toxicology. You say, um, and this is all relevant to the book, so you kind of, you also kind of give this background at the beginning to explain to readers that people might not understand as they're reading the book how you have firsthand experience with so many of the things that you talk about, but it's because you've had this sort of wide-ranging career. Um, and the book is is dedicated to, to, to Paul Saunders. I saw that as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, how you came to write The Alchemy of Disease and... Um, you know, just what what led you to to put these the sort of career's worth of, of insights into a sort of introductory history of toxicology? Sure. Well, we we moved to Santa Fe uh, around 2010, and a few years, and I was back and forth for a while, and I was I was at on the faculty at uh, Columbia, in the School of Public Health, the Department of Environmental Health Sciences. And I was teaching the general toxicology course and to graduate students and also involved in molecular toxicology course. <clears throat> and and I, I had to give that up because it was just impossible for me to continue to do that from, from Santa Fe. So I, there were a few years where I wasn't really doing very much. And I got the idea of maybe doing this. And I was... I'll never forget. I went on a trip with my older daughter. We were going to go scuba diving, but there was a hurricane in the place where we were going to go in southern Mexico, and in Mexico, not New Mexico. And we decided to take a trip together down to southern New Mexico because I had never been down to Carlsbad Caverns and so forth. And I was talking to her about it, and she said, well, why don't you write that book that you've been talking about? And so our conversation evolved. And um, so for the next five years, um, I spent a fair amount of my time writing this book. And, and actually, my older daughter edited the whole thing. She's a fantastic writer and, and she's an environmental engineer, so she understands some of the material pretty well. So that's, that's how this all developed. And I was fortunate, partly, I guess, because I had been on the faculty at Columbia, that I went to Columbia University Press and they, they were interested in the book. So let's start with um, just some kind of basic definitions. What is toxicology and where does it come from? Toxicology is the study of chemicals, basically, although we call them xenobiotics, things that are outside of the body, which can harm you. And it's the study of how those agents can harm a person. Of course, many times we use animal experiments, so it's how it harms animals. And the, the real, the father of toxicology, and although there were 
there were some beginnings in, in Greece and, and the Roman Empire. Um, it was really Paracelsus, who was a Swiss physician, in the, and he was born uh, in 1493. The, and he, he traveled around, and he was, became very interested in, he was, one of the reasons the book is called The Alchemy is Disease was that Paracelsus was not only a physician, he was an alchemist as well. And alchemy in those days had a pretty wide definition. In many ways, alchemy is the is the beginning of chemistry as we know it today, because they were doing experiments in order to transform metals and and so forth. But it also had to do with with the whole treatment of trying to treat diseases. And it was very, very wrapped up in in uh, in Catholicism and religious experience, and and Paracelsus was the embodiment of all of that. He was became very interested in treating people with metals, in particular mercury. Galen, who was the Roman uh, physician. Uh, I guess it was 280 or around there, had developed a whole treatment system based upon all these very complex herbal remedies, which, which held sway all, all through the time of Paracelsus. And Paracelsus was an experimentalist himself, so he, he tried them and found they didn't work. And... Um, I think that a, a lot of the phys, so-called physicians in those days didn't really care whether or not they worked. They did their, they read the books and they did what they said they were supposed to do. And the patients either got better or got worse. And if they got better, well, then they patted themselves on the back. But Paracelsus was a much more critical thinker. So he and one of the diseases that they were treating in, in that period of time, like I said, Paracelsus was born in, in, in 1493. And there were people who had come back from the New World. And we have recently discovered the fact that syphilis came from the New World and was introduced into Spain and then Italy and France and so forth. And the treatments for that, one of the treatments for that was mercury. Now, mercury is a very toxic chemical, and physicians who were, who were doing this were essentially almost killing their patients at the same time they were treating them. Paracelsus discovered that you didn't have to give such a high toxic dose of mercury in order to treat the syphilis. And so, therefore... He developed what is one of the fundamental principles of toxicology, which is the dose makes the poison. And all things, he said, all things are poisons, but you don't have to give, uh, only the dose separates the poison from the remedy. In other words, you can give, so he developed the whole concept of dose response, which is really a fundamental, fundamental issue in toxicology. So um, in the second section of the book, once you have, have kind of laid the foundations of, of what is toxicology, um, 
the, the second section is titled, How Do We Study Toxicology? What Have We Learned? And it, it goes through three significant historical events. So you talk about investigations into childhood lead poisoning. You talk about Rachel Carson and DDT. You talk about the discovery of the association between tobacco use, between cigarettes and cancer. So um, tell us a little bit about these these three different events um, and what do they have in common? Well, they all involved, like as I said, they were discoveries in toxicology and even in various areas. So originally... Some physicians in Australia in the late 1800s were noticing that children were having this seizures and anemia, uh, and they were trying to figure out what this was all about. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this all has to do with people observing, being really good observers, and try to figure out what's going on with, with the situation. So the, they discovered that children were eating lead paint off of peeling off of houses. Lead is a fantastic paint. My father, I used to watch him make lead paint. Um, he would, you know, make it from scratch, and he claimed it was the best paint there is, and it is, but it's toxic. So that so, and another thing that happened in the in the area of lead poisoning was one of the um, I can't remember his name right now, but a researcher was looking at the uh, at, at deposits in 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 ice sheets and glaciers, found lead in them in them that sort of corresponded with recent times, and he developed his techniques to where he could measure very very small quantities of lead, and made the link between uh, the fact that there was lead in these glacial uh, ice sheets that came from automobile exhaust. So there were two major sources of lead poisoning that were discovered by people who were who were just trying to really find out uh, certain things from their observations. Now, in the case of Rachel Carson, Rachel Carson, uh, what is, this is in the area what we would call ecological a toxicology. She was observed the fact that birds were dying in large quantities in certain areas. And she discovered the fact that they were dying because of exposure to pesticides. And or or at least the, the pesticides were killing their food source. So the if the DDT killed the insects and the birds were uh, depended upon the insects for their food source, well, then the birds were dying because they didn't have any food. So Rachel Carson was another really wonderful example of somebody who observed what she was seeing and um, uh, and then studied it and came up with the, with the hypothesis and figured out what was going on with the uh, with that particular toxicological issue. Ernst Winder was actually, I knew Ernst uh, pretty well. He was uh, president of the American Health Foundation where I spent a lot of time. I I had a laboratory there and I was doing research on chemicals, but Ernst started his career when he was in medical school, 
late 1940s, I think it was at George Washington University, he was in autopsies where he he saw that people's lungs were blackened. And people didn't make too much out of it because most, most of the men had blackened lungs. But Ernst figured that there was something to this. And it turns out that there were so many people smoking cigarettes that everybody's almost everybody's lungs were blackened from cigarette smoke. But Ernst, Ernst decided that there was something there. And so he did the, f- the first major study in the United States on cigarette smoking and lung cancer. People in England did the same. UK did the same. And, and Bradford Hill and, and his colleagues, Bradford Hill became Sir Bradford Hill. He was knighted for his accomplishments. Ernst Winder, unfortunately, was censored. Uh, he was at Sloan Cuttering at the time, and they were supported by Philip Morris. So they weren't real happy at the time with what he was doing. And that's also a common theme with all three of these. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from the, not so much the lead paint industry, but from the people who were putting lead in gasoline, the so-called ethyl corporation. And Rachel Carson, of course, got uh, in, a, in a, a lot of pushback from the pesticide manufacturers and like I say, Ernst Winter did too. So they all have that in common as well. That is a, a certainly a, um, a sort of uh, persistent and um, disturbing theme. Is is that is how much of how much how often how many of these toxic chemicals um, are come from industry? Um, and so the book um, described some really actually quite deadly results of, of various industries' failures to protect workers um, who are exposed to toxic chemicals. I wondered if you could give us just one example of, 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 one, of uh, a failure like that and, um, why, and tell us why, why do you think that the U.S. seems to prefer to determine the harms of toxic exposure through litigation Rather than say, you know, practicing the precautionary principle, because um, you know, a, a lot of the way that uh, these companies are rein, are eventually reined in is through legal battles after a lot of damage has already been done. Well, part of it has to do just with the development of information. I mean, when people were, for example, one of the, one of the incredible people in, in, in this field is, is uh, Alice Hamilton, who was studying uh, toxic exposures, occupational exposures in the early uh, 1900s. And she was the first female faculty member at Harvard. And she was one of the, one of the industries that she was studying again was the lead industry. And these were the people who were making the white lead that was going to be used in paint. And they, they became incredibly ill from their exposures. And she discovered, you know, she figured out that it was because of the exposure to lead in the industries. And she had a very interesting experience because she found out that if she would go and talk 
to the um, the company and find the person who was in charge and or the owner and explain to them what was going on. In many cases, they were quite receptive and would take uh, measures to limit the exposures of their workers because they actually wanted a healthy workforce as well. And But of course, there were people who didn't at the time. So I think that I think that there is a um, I don't think we can say that all industries are bad or all people who are within the same industry are some. She found that some of them were were well-intentioned and some of them weren't. So I think that's the that's kind of a simple answer to your question. But I think also the development of knowledge, you know, we people. Um, for example, we, we just became aware in the 1970s of the problems with, for example, vinyl chloride causing uh, uh, liver cancer and benzene causing uh, leukemia, uh, even though there were some studies but previously, but they weren't very, they weren't, they weren't done with a lot of scientific rigor. For example, Ernst Winder's first study of cigarette smoking was just about the first time that a that a type of study called a case control study was done, and um, and a lot of people were skeptical of his results because of the method that was being used. So I think that I think part of the answer to that is just it takes a while for us to develop the knowledge to understand which chemicals are toxic and which chemicals are not particularly toxic. I th- certainly, I mean, I think, um, what, well, when I was in public health school, I think a lot of these sort of historical case studies, there was kind of like a folk history around them and they d- and it did have to do a lot with like the big bad corporations and then the grassroots activists and public health advocates who, um, you know, made our regulations safer. Um, so, I mean, did you have any, any thoughts about, um, about the, the precautionary principle and why we just seem less enthusiastic about it in the United States? Well, for, certainly for government regulatory purposes, the precautionary principle is, uh, is certainly in place. I mean, for example, when when regulations are developed of levels of exposures based upon animal studies, usually we take the lowest dose, the dose that does not show an effect, the so-called no effect level, and divide that by a factor of a hundred or a thousand in order to come up with a what is, you know, for example, drinking water standard or whatever. So I think the precautionary principle is, is certainly in place in terms of government regulatory measures for the general population. With occupational exposures, it's a little more complicated because all occupations, most occupations, have some degree of, of exposure to danger. For example, being a bus driver or being a truck driver or being a, the, almost the worst example is being a commercial fisherman uh, in terms of 
things that can go wrong in the workplace. And there's a trade-off. And presumably the trade-off is that if you want to make money, uh, you may have to be willing to take certain risks in, in your occupation. And so for occupational exposures, when OSHA puts together a regulation, they're always trying to balance the um, the realities of the workplace with the exposures in order to come up with kind of a kind of a middle ground. I mean, they they actually say in their regulations that this may not be protective of absolutely everybody, but for almost all workers. And I think in the book I give the example of beryllium, uh, where we found out that the uh, exposure level for beryllium was not protective enough of certain individuals because it's a it's a, the it, the toxicity is mediated by the immune system. So some people are particularly sensitive to beryllium exposures and get something called chronic beryllium disease when most people wouldn't at those levels. And so now. The regular, the occupational standards for beryllium are reflective of that possibility that there are some people who are very sensitive to beryllium. So I, what I'm trying to say is I think in certain instances, the precautionary principle has is, is being applied, but in certain circumstances, it's, it, it's very difficult to do it completely. Um, I'm, I, I'd like you to get into what you call in the final section, the unfinished business of toxicology. But um, just before we go there, um, there, there is this really fascinating um, kind of interlude in the in the book, in the third section of the book, where you write about um, the, to- the toxicology of war, um, where toxic substances intentionally have been used to harm military personnel and even civilians. And you say the subject isn't usually included in textbooks or taught in toxicology courses, but toxicologists were involved in the development of of chemical weapons, essentially, and and antidotes to counter their effects. So um, tell us a little bit more about the toxicology of war and and why did you include it when it is um, left out in so many um, other introductory accounts. Well, as, as you mentioned before, I've had a lot of different experiences throughout my career. And, and one of them was I worked for an occupational health consulting firm. And um, I've done some, I, and I've done a fair amount of work for the government off and on uh, various projects. And one of them I, that we were contacted on had to do with a lawsuit that uh, veterans were uh, had against the uh, United States government, Department of Defense. And it had to do with the, uh, and I describe some of this in the book there. So during the First World War, and, and this is the reason why I, why I got knowledgeable about it and got interested in it, was during the First World War was when chemical weapons were really being used. And... <clears throat> A lot of people were killed. A lot of soldiers were killed during the First World War. So when the Second World War was beginning, 
the people became the Defense Department became aware of the fact that that the both the Germans and the Japanese were developing chemical warfare agents, and this is mo- mustard gas and things like that. And so they decided that they had to try to figure out how to protect the troops in battlefield. And the way that they did it was that they actually exposed people under controlled situations to some of these agents to try to figure out what protective clothing would work, creams that could be put on the skin that would so these agents actually burn the skin. They're called vesicants, create scarring, and and they they don't necessarily kill people, but they make them so ineffective in the battlefield because of this burning that is going on um, in their body. So the the government was trying to figure out how to protect uh, people in the in battlefield situations. Well, it turned out that nobody really used these weapons during the Second World War. I mean, we had them, the Brits, the UK had them, and uh, Hitler had them. It turned out that it, it, that Hitler was actually <laughs> vesicated during the First World War. So uh, the, the the sort of scuttlebutt is that he didn't want to unleash that genie in the Second World War because he had actually been uh, exposed to mustard gas by his own troops. The wind was blowing in the wrong direction or something. So, uh, but the Japanese had it. And so, um, so like I say, it was never actually used in the second world war. When we got to the Vietnam war and, and after that people were, uh, people were developing nerve agents to be used in warfare. And so again, the government, they would expose people, troops to some of these nerve agents under controlled conditions and then try to give them anecdotes, treat them for the reverse, the effects of the nerve agents and so forth. So there's a whole, there was a whole history of this. <clears throat> and like I said, the lawsuit really didn't have to do with suing for damages, but uh, the veterans wanted to be treated outside of the VA system and there was another thing. They wanted some kind of a notification process, and I didn't really understand that. But anyway, we were asked by the government to develop a series of reports to tell them what were the long-term effects of these experiments and so that they could figure out how they were going to deal with the with this lawsuit, <clears throat> which we did. And actually, my the person who was the president of Washington Occupational Health happened to be an expert in biological agents because when the anthrax uh, scare happened in Washington, D.C., with both, we actually did work for the architect of the Capitol and and he was working for some of the news organizations as well. And, and they were the ones that had been getting the anthrax and the letters. So he became a one of the experts on biological agents. In, in, in any event, this is how I became aware of the whole issue by by investigating. I I was given a lot of declassified information from the era, era of the Second World War and and afterwards uh, that had to do with these agents in order to write up my report, rep- my two reports, and other other people that Ken hired, uh, Ken Chase hired, did other reports. 
So that's that's how I got involved in it and interested in it. And I thought it was kind of because there are whole textbooks written about these issues, but they they don't seem to make it into the general toxicology area. And I just just like usually opiate addiction is not treated uh, in toxicology uh, textbooks. So I just thought that they had a place and should be uh, should be in the book. So, so let's, let's talk more about that because I, um, I did, I think I found the connection between the history of toxicology and the current um, opioid crisis to be, to be fascinating. Um, And in the final section of the book, you, um, you argue in favor of investment in disease prevention. um, And, um, and, and then you kind of uh, relate that argument to really pressing contemporary um, public health issues like the opioid crisis and climate change that people might not think about as being sort of toxicological issues. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about that concluding argument sure. um, and, and how it relates to sort of um, the headlines we see in the news every day? Sure. So part, but part of the unfinished business is not just prevention. It's the fact that the government is, is kind of fickle. You know, when, when, the, when something is in the press and people are concerned about it, like was the case when, when Nixon had the war on drugs, uh, Nixon just, I think, just wanted results. He wanted, uh, he, put, he put Jerry Jaffe, who is the, from a psychiatry professor from the University of Chicago in charge and sort of gave him free reign and lots of money in order to treat heroin addiction in the United States. Unfortunately, subsequent presidents sort of lost their focus in doing this. And I think that we had made a lot of progress in treating heroin addiction, but as years went on, there was less and less of a coordinated effort. And, you know, budgets, people think, well, maybe we need to spend this money on something else and so forth. And so in the opiate addiction area, I think it's, it's the problem was that the government kind of lost its focus. And then all of a sudden the prescription opiates came by and the, all, the, all the new opiates like fentanyl and its derivatives. And it's sort of, overwhelmed everybody partly because again the the um the organizations weren't in place in order to figure out what to do with this and to treat it quickly the same thing actually happened in lead uh to a certain extent although lead poisoning became much less of a problem but again as time went on the government kind of lost focus and as part of in the lead chapter, which is an earlier chapter, I also talk about what happened with lead in the drinking water in Flint, Michigan, and, and so forth. So that's that's part of it. The other part of the unfinished business, and you mentioned the climate change article, I mean, chapter. Okay, so climate change, the issue of climate change, unfortunately, I think, became a political issue. And uh, I know that the, you could blame either political party for it, but I mean, Al Gore really made it a central part of his campaign 
which I think was, I mean, I, I applaud that, but it had the unintended consequence of turning this into a Democrat and Republican issue, I think. And so part of the reason I wrote this chapter was to point out to people the fact that we don't really even have to think about climate change to solve this problem. If we solve the issue of the burning of fossil fuels that is causing immediate health problems, such as lung cancer, emphysema, you name it, all the ozone, the nitrogen oxides, the particulate matter, and so forth, that if we focused and were successful on reining in the air pollution problem, the only way we could really do that is to control the use of fossil fuels and production of fossil fuels. And so as a toxicologist, what I'm trying to say is that if we could really focus on that issue, climate change, the climate change issue would sort of evaporate because we would have dealt with the source of climate change as well. Um, actually, one of the reasons I got involved with climate change is my my younger daughter illustrated a book uh, that her and her, this, they started this in grammar school of all things, uh, called the Global Warming Express. And it was a kid's book that had to do with teaching kids about climate change. And of course, their approach was to talk about the animals that were being affected and put together this whole story of a magical train that would pick up animals from different parts of the world to try to rescue them. Um, so I, part of the reason I became interested in climate change again was because of my other daughter who, who wrote this book. But as a toxicologist, as I said, I, I think that toxicologists can focus on the issue of air pollution and the, therefore climate change will um, uh, be resolved as well. Uh, the other issues in that chapter um, are, are one of them is particularly near and dear to the, some of the hearts of some of the toxicologists I know very well and people who are with the International Agency for Research on Cancer. It had to do with how we interpret animal testing, whether or not the animal tests really tell us what are carcinogens in humans and what are not. And it's a it's kind of a very more of a technical issue, but it has to do with whether or not these these tumors in the animals have the same me underlying mechanism as do the tumors that and cancers that happen in humans. And I I, I think that we have ignored um, uh, a lot of the information that could let us do this in a in a more uh, expeditious manner. And part of it has to, unfortunately, has to do with the regulatory um, apparatus where regulators are kind of reluctant to um, upset the apple cart because if they start to question some of the animal toxicity results, which is the basis of a lot of the regulations, uh, some of these regulations, they might have to um, unravel a bit. But um, but that's a like I say it's the it's it's and 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 the animal tests really don't even tell us often when a chemical causes cancer in humans um, because as 
as Larry Norton, who's who is the world world's expert on on breast cancer. And I, when I was speaking to him about some of the studies that we were doing at the American Health Foundation in animals on on various uh, nutrient levels and so forth and the development of breast cancer, Larry Norton says, you know, we don't have long naked tails, meaning we're different from rats and we have to really uh, take some of the animal testing with a, with a bit of skepticism. And how does that relate to um, investing in sort of treat, treatments versus prevention? Okay, so uh, um, I, I wrote a, one chapter in this book on, on prevention, and I could have written a huge chapter or several chapters when I finally get into it. Because so the, the organization, as I mentioned, that Ernst Winder had, was a what's was called a Z- disease prevention research institute, and we were we were not studying what how to treat uh, uh, cancer and other diseases. Everybody there, and it was a, it was a couple of hundred people at that research institute that Ernst had, had started, which was heavily funded by the National Cancer Institute, was to try to figure out what causes cancer and how to prevent it. So that's how my interest in prevention developed. And um, actually, my I'm writing another book now on disease prevention, uh, totally on disease prevention, but it has to do with, with diet and all sorts of different lifestyle manners and so forth. Um, but um, I, I think, I think, so div- treatment certainly has a place in, in, in everything, but, and and I think that we have, we need to focus more on prevention because it is a much more cost-effective way of dealing with uh, disease. One of the things that sort of upset me about the democratic debates of the, uh, you know, the presidential debates was everybody was talking about how to pay for health care and whether there should be a single payer system or there should be other things, but you know, nobody mentioned disease prevention. And it just was shocking to me because it's certainly the most cost-effective way of dealing with, with diseases. And there are, there is of course, prevention that has to do with early screening and has to do with treating people with, for like high blood pressure and stuff like that. But there's also things that can be applied to the whole population um, that is preventative, that you don't have to, you don't have to even go to a doctor to figure out whether or not you should uh, uh, do them. You can do them on your own. Like, for example, restric- restricting your salt intake or, or, uh, or taking certain vitamin supplements, which people have shown to be beneficial or, 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 trying to focus on the, eating the Mediterranean diet rather than the amount of, of meat consumption that we, that we do. So, so, like I say, prevention is also important, but it's a much broader, the book that I'm working on now is much broader than just prevention and toxicology. But going back to toxicology for, for a minute, we're, so prevention and toxicology, we have actually harvested a lot of what I call the low-hanging fruit 
in toxicology. Uh, you know, the, the occup occupational area, especially, we I think we've done a pretty good job of restricting exposures in the workplace. Not a hundred percent, but uh, but but it has come a, a long way. So that most occupations are much more disease-free. And with all the regulatory procedures and cleanups that have been done, um, I think we're, 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 we've done a pretty good job in the in environmental area as well. So that's sort of the, um, there are, like I say, there are some issues that we haven't done a very good job with, which is the remaining issues with lead poisoning, opiate addiction, and trying to figure out chemicals that cause cancer based on animal studies uh, versus human studies. So that's, so those, those are some of the, some of the issues. I, like I say, I'm not against treating people or screening methods or, or, or treating people for what we call pre-morbid conditions, but I think we could do a lot more in the, in the prevention, much wider prevention area. Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time and you have actually already answered my last question, which is what you're working on next. And it certainly sounds like prevention um, is worthy of a, of a book of its own. Um, and anything else you're working on or you, anything else you want to share with the audience? Uh, well, I'm pretty much focusing on this, uh, uh, on this, on this book. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, of course, we're all living in a very strange time right now. And my daughter, my younger daughter is trying to figure out what college to go to next in the middle of this COVID, um, COVID process. Actually, I, you know, I, I, and I spent a little bit of time thinking about the pandemic and realizing that we've actually have a couple of other pandemics that we should be dealing with as well. And one of them is the issue of air pollution and climate change. Uh, the reason that the current pandemic is getting so much attention is because it's more obvious. It's fast moving. It's all of a sudden on top of us. But there are these other pandemics that are very slow in developing, which um, which also need to be uh, taken care of. And I think the biggest one right now is the issue of air pollution and, and climate change. And of course, the opioid crisis as well, right? So we have multiple Absolutely. multiple crises ongoing. Well, John, um, thank you so much for taking time to um, to speak with us today. I really enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed it too, and I want to thank you very much for uh, having me on your program. 